thank you for joining us for another fun episode of Sip Sip Hooray. We are the podcast for people who like wine, but also like to keep it real, really real. And today, I can honestly tell you, we're going to make a splash with our guest. She is a 12-time Olympic medalist and the first woman ever to swim the 100-meter backstroke in less than a minute. She's also co-owner of a winery who is very hands-on about being a vintner. She is an all-around badass and a super nice person. She is Natalie Coglin, and we are so excited to chat with her today. We, of course, are the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be Mary. I'm Mary Babbitt. That's right, and I'm Mary Orlin. And this three-time Olympian traded pools for punch-downs, swim meets for cooking competitions, and world-class swimming for making world-class wines. Natalie's earned 12 medals, including three golds, and now her wines are taking the gold, too. She is a super athlete, a vintner, a wife, a mom, a book and cookbook author, a Sports Illustrated swim model, and an Iron Chef judge. Natalie, welcome to Sip Sip Hooray. Thank you for having me. Man, that was the best introduction I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's amazing is that you live up to all of that. I mean, none of it is a fib. It's all true. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) So I guess the first question is, how do you do it all, Natalie? It's tough, especially the last couple of years, balancing it all uh, between, you know, the pandemic and then I had my second kid. And um, yeah, I'm one of those people who tends to say yes to everything, which is great because it presents a lot of opportunities, but it also makes me a little crazy. (laughs) So uh, keeping my schedule straight is is tough at times, uh, but I do my best. Well, I think we should first talk about your path to Olympic swimming. When did you know that you were just an avid swimmer, a natural, and um, how did competition come about? Well, I started uh, swim team at age six. So I did some lessons from the time I was an infant just because, you know, water safety, we had a pool in the backyard and my parents are just being really responsible parents, um, by getting me into some lessons. And I ended up moving from Vallejo to Benicia and uh, at age six. And in order to meet kids in my new town, I joined the local swim team. So, uh, that was when I was six, which also happened to coincide with the 19, 19- 88 Olympics. Um, and I immediately said, along with all my other friends, I want to go to the Olympics someday. But (laughs) (laughs) who hasn't said that? Exactly. I had no business saying it at age six, but um, I was competitive and very confident, (laughs) even though I wasn't that good at first. Um, But I, I said I wanted to go to the Olympics. And then 15 years later, I was actually there. It is incredible. And, you know, as a parent who put my kids in all the swim lessons and whatnot, um, my kids didn't, you know, sure, I'm sure they thought they wanted to be in the Olympics also, but it wasn't like anybody (laughs) really had the drive A or the talent or, so I guess what I wonder is how did you, oh, go from this being something that you just were doing for your sport, right, to did, at some point, did you realize, man, I have a natural gift for this, I have really long arms, I have something that is an advantage, or was it truly just that I have the fire in the belly that wants this? 
Um, it, it was more the latter. So I definitely have some physical traits that really helps. I mean, um, I, I do have very long arms and a long torso, uh, but I am on the shorter end for a, a sprinter. So I've always said how I would love to have been, you know, four inches taller or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it was really that I was super competitive from a very, very young age. So it didn't matter what I was doing, whether it was swimming or gymnastics or frisbee or flag football at um at school like anything i wanted to be the best and so whatever i did i would try to beat the people next to me and fortunately i found swimming and i was the most successful at swimming um i tried some other sports gymnastics and volleyball and and things but um swimming kind of chose me and i you know i enjoyed being good at it. And so the hard work that Samin takes kind of came naturally because I enjoyed the feedback of improving and getting, getting better and better and then beating the people on the left and right of me. Mm -hmm. I am in awe because my swim team experience was joining when I was about nine years old. I thought the swimsuits were really cool. I wanted one really badly. The Mm -hmm. only way to get it was join the team. And I think I quit the next day or two. (laughs) Worth it. (laughs) Totally worth it. And you know what? My mom saved that suit. I found it in her things like 10 years ago. I was shocked. Like, mom, I can't believe you kept this. (laughs) But it... But anyway, um, so you swam competitively in college. When did you realize that the Olympics were really within reach? Um, I realized at age 13, um, which is really young. Uh, but that was when I first finaled at nationals. Um, and it was at 96 Fort Lauderdale Nationals. And I'll never forget it. I was in lane one. Uh, for the 200 freestyle and the announcer announced me. I remember, you know, it was in lane one, 13 year old Natalie Coughlin. And um, I knew what the path to making the Olympic team looked like um, that, you know, you have to qualify for Olympic trials and you have to get uh, first or second in your event. And I understood the path and I understood that I was in the upper echelon and uh, I had the ability to make the Olympic team. So that was the first time that I, I realized it was a possibility and, and that I had uh, a lot of work ahead of me. And competing in three Olympics. Let's talk about that a little bit. What was that like? And did the Olympics have each have a different vibe for you? Was there one where it's like, you know, was the 2004 like, yes, this was the most impactful or, you know, what were your takeaways from each of the Olympics? Yes, they were all very, very different. Um, for two, 2004, that was my first Olympics. So I, you know, had missed making the Olympic team in 2000. And, you know, I was so close, but I, I you know, didn't make it. So in 2004, it was partially like vindication of, um, you know, finally being an Olympian. Uh, but yet I had so much pressure on me because I was, um, such a great college swimmer, you know, I won, uh, NC2A swimmer of the year for three years and had 12 individual NC2A titles. So I had all these, um, 
accolades, but none of them were Olympics. Uh, so I had a lot of pressure on me in that sense. And I remember it was like, I was regarded as such a great swimmer, but I didn't have that gold medal. And so I felt like I kind of needed to get that, um, you know, that monkey off your back type Mm -hmm. thing. Um, And so uh, I felt so relieved when I finally got my gold medal in the 100 backstroke, which was, I believe, the third night and uh, of an eight day competition. So I just felt so much relief after having done that. Um, so, so that Olympics was all about finally achieving your lifelong dream and being there and having all this pressure of being a first time Olympian. And then in Beijing, it was all about defending your title and uh, tons and tons of pressure. And then in 2012, I didn't have a great year. So I was actually, I was only in one event uh, and that event was the first day. So I was able to compete, um, earn my 12th medal and then watch the Olympics and and actually be a spectator and, uh, you know, main cheerleader of uh, my, my Olympic teammates. So they were all very, very different. And I enjoyed them all um, differently, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it does. And, uh, you know, talk about shaking that monkey off your back in a very definitive way. (laughs) Your medal (laughs) count is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So when you stopped competing, what was that like for you? Because um, it's it, training for Olympics and the type of swimming competitions you are doing takes up so much time and energy. Um, how is it transitioning that out to becoming a civilian? It's tough. Um, it's it's really really tough because I was a professional athlete from 2004, and then you know I tried to make the 2016 Olympics, just missed it. Um, so, you know, 12 years of, of being a professional athlete and then, um, you know, not to mention college athletics and everything. So, um, when you are used to having your life so regimented and being told what to do and having the schedule, um, kind of determined for you 50 weeks out of the year, um, it's kind of hard when you're done and then you you kind of feel like you're flailing, you know, like you don't have anyone telling you what to do or where to be, or you don't have that daily schedule of, you know, five, six hours of training. So if you're not prepared for that, it could be uh, very, very tough. Fortunately, I was older. Um, so I think I was 34, um, 34, I think in, in 16, 2016. Um, and so I had planned for that. Like I knew swimming was going to end at some point. So when um, I stepped back from competing, I um, started shopping my cookbook around um, and I ended up selling it at the end of 2016. So I was able to take a little bit of time off of, of athletics and kind of just enjoy my life for a few months and then dive in, uh, no pun intended, um, into writing my cookbook and, and trans transitioning in that way. Um, but all that being said, I had the hardest part for me was going from being with my coaches and my teammates on a daily basis 
to being in my office and being in my kitchen with pretty much no one around other than my husband and my dogs. Um, and so I, I went from being around 50 people to, you know, one person all day, um, which I, is something that we could all relate to uh, with uh, the lockdowns of the <laughs> past sure. year and a half. Um, so it, I remember having like full on conversations with my dogs because I was just <laughs> so starved for uh, other social interaction. They're really good <laughs> listeners. They are. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, I, I think... Um, I love the fact you're clearly a person who just, as you mentioned, you say yes. And going through life with a yes uh, and attitude, you know, the uh, the improv thing, yes and. Yes, yes, um, <laughs> I just think that um, you, you are open to incredible opportunities and incredible things come your way. But you also have this inner confidence that says, I can do it. You know, like write a cookbook. I can do it. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I like cooking too, but I don't think I didn't never would think I would have what it takes to write a cookbook. And there you went and did it. You just said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And you know, what was that like? Um, had you trained as a cook or a chef in any way? Or were you just a home cook who was who got accolades from your friends and family like, dang, that was delicious. And you thought, well, I can do this. Yeah, well, I mean, I think part of being a professional athlete is that we have a lot of hubris, you know, <laughs> we have a, a, a lot of confidence in ourselves. Um, and yeah, like I knew I was a great home cook. Um, I, for years, um, one of the big auction items at the Cal Aquatics Gala. So I, I, I went to Cal and we um, every other year. Yeah, go bears. We uh, would have our... Um, biannual, uh, ga uh, maybe not biannual, every other year, uh, gala where I would auction off a dinner for eight where I'd cater it. Um, it's like four courses. And so that was always super successful, got rave reviews for that. Um, and I was like, it was terrible. Oh my God. It was, <laughs> it was so much. It, like, I mean, people paid a fortune for that. Right. And so it took weeks of prep to do mm. <laughs> weeks of prep and, and it was uh eventually my coach uh said to me hey we're not doing that anymore you stress out way too much mm -hmm. <laughs> before that which I was grateful that someone else made that decision for me but um I, so I would do that um I would just always cook for my friends and family post things on either you know earlier is on Twitter and then Instagram and so people had always said you know why don't you write a cookbook and um I saw writing the cookbook as a way to share my stories from traveling and from swimming in uh, a different way. Like I didn't want to write a biography or a memoir. Um, so I wanted to write something that appealed to me. And so using food as a uh, method of sharing stories. And so my cookbook has, you know, recipes from the times when I was traveling and training for the Olympics um, and a lot of family recipes and just, you know, other, other recipes that I would make myself throughout the year. Um, and kind of my overall food philosophy, which is, uh, eat good food and in moderation, like you could have super healthy stuff and you could have really indulgent stuff. And I don't believe in things like cheat days. Um, mm -hmm. I believe in making thoughtful choices, uh, within a lifestyle. That's terrific. And I, I was looking at some of the recipes and some of them are from your grandmother. Um, you come from a Filipino family background. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah. So I was very, very fortunate in that um, my grandmother is still alive and uh, my great grandmother was alive until I was in college. So um, I, yeah, so I was able to pull on my mother's recipes, my grandmother's recipes and my great grandma's recipes. So um, my, you know, I have a chicken adobo that is kind of a hybrid of my mom, grandma and great grandma's recipe. I have an ukoi, which is uh, a shrimp fritter that goes so well with my wine. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's like one of my favorite pairings. It goes really, really well with the Chenin Blanc. Um, that's my great grandmother's recipe. Um, a bunch of lumpia and hollow hollow and, and stuff like that and stuff that I grew up eating. And even though, you know, I am fair skin and blue eyed, um, I do have that Filipino background and that's, that's the food that makes me so happy. And um, the food that I was, it was really important for me to include that in my book. So while you were training for the Olympics and other competitions, where did wine fit in? Uh, it fit in on a nightly basis. Um, <laughs> you know, I would, I would have a glass of wine with dinner and I didn't see that as a problem. Um, you know, I'm not having a whole bottle uh, with dinner, I'm having a glass and, mm -hmm. Um, that's something that I grew up with. My my parents always had a glass of wine with dinner and um, it, it was normal and not taboo. Uh, so when I became of drinking age, um, I I wanted to learn more about wine. You know, I, I'm, Napa Valley is in my backyard. And so I wanted to learn more about that industry. And I, you know, grew to love wine. Um, and so it, it fit in with that healthy lifestyle of moderation and, and making uh, thoughtful choices. Um, that being said, when I you know went to the Olympics and World Championships and stuff, uh, we would travel with USA Swimming, and uh, they have very very strict rules that it's completely dry when you're on uh, <laughs> when you're in training camp. Okay. All right. Well, I like the philosophy, though, with the moderation and the notion, like even the title of your cookbook, uh, Cook to Thrive, the idea of eating good foods in moderation and fueling your body for whether it's for athletic success or just day to day good feelings. Yeah. And, and like my degree is in psychology. And I think the psychology of um, deprivation, like I don't want to be told I can't have something because knowing me like that only makes me obsessed with that one thing. So mm -hmm. if I say I can't have a glass of wine or I can't have chocolate or I can't have butter, all it'll do is make me like obsessed with over certain <laughs> things, you know? Ditto. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think it's better to have it in moderation and, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, know that it's part of an overall lifestyle. Well, All right. Well, let's talk about you getting into wine and, and getting into Gadarian wines. How did that come about? Yeah. So my business partner and friend and winemaker, uh, Shana Harding, um, she and I have known each other for maybe close to 15 years or so. Um, and her husband swam with my husband at UC Santa Barbara. And when she moved out to California, she started uh, working her way up in the wine industry. And I was always so impressed with her. Um, you know, she moved out from uh, uh, New York. I mean, she was from Florida, but she was living in New York at the time, moved out to California, 
started working as a seller rat and then just kind of gradually worked her way up um, to enologist and then to associate winemaker. And then now she's the winemaker at Honeycutt. Um, and um, I was always very vocal with her in that I was so impressed with how talented she was and and what she had accomplished. You know, she went back to school, went to UC Davis, got her degree in viticulture and knowledge and all all while working her way in the wine industry. And um, I was always so fascinated by it all. And in 2017, uh, she texted me and said, hey, I want to start a wine brand. Do you want to partner with me? And I said, yes, immediately, kind of going with that, the overall theme of my life. Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I have no idea what that means, but I can't wait. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, I can yeah, do it. Exactly. 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 So, um, yeah, I said yes immediately. And then I kind of joked with her, like, did you actually mean to text me or <laughs> was there someone else in your contacts that you were trying to text? But um, so we started in 2017 with a Chenin Blanc and Pinot Noir, and we've expanded from there. And while, you know, while we were getting started, I started taking some online classes at UC Davis um, in viticulture and analogy just to get my back, uh, you know, get the knowledge, like the base knowledge. Um, but because of my uh, psychology background in at Cal, I did have, you know, bio and plant bio. So I did understand the science uh, a little bit and I was able to add to my knowledge, but really winemaking, um, you learn the most from doing it. Uh, and so I learned, I've learned so, so much over the last, uh, you know, five vintages of, of winemaking. And it's, it's, it's really, it's really fun the the science of it, the art of it, the physical labor of it. I, I it appeals to so many different um, parts of my brain. <laughs> well, I was reading that you described doing punch downs, sort of like swimming. It is. Uh, the, the, so we do our punch downs by hand uh, with uh, our Pinot Noir. And um, it's so great because you, you know, sanitize your, your arms up to your shoulders and you just lean over the bins and stir up the ferment because um, the, the top of the, when, when everything is in bins, so the must and the juice and everything, it's, it's in these big bins and it's um, fermenting along and the cap is the top of, of the bin and you don't want that to dry out and you want the ferment to be even. So you just bend over these big bins and you just kind of swim through the wine with your arms. Um, <laughs> it, it, in swimming, we call that sculling. Um, so ah, if you think about it, yes. um, like, like an oar or something. And I have these really, really long arms. And so uh, <laughs> I love that. And that's that's probably my favorite thing to do. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's You're so natural. Cool. I'm just... <laughs> I'm just picturing that. That's an awesome uh, visual image for me. Um, you sculling through the grapes. and uh, It's so the, satisfying. The juice. <laughs> Are there any other parallels between your swimming competitive world and winemaking? Um, in that a lot of, uh, a lot of my former teammates and a lot of the coaches love wine <laughs> uh, and, uh, are great customers, which is, which is lovely. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the only one that really, really translates. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of physical, um, 
labor to to making wine, um, from moving the barrels to climbing on the barrel. There's all sorts of things. So I'm interested in the fact that you could have just been the uh, co-vintner in name only, you know, and right. you bring a panache with uh, – your Olympic greatness, and you're just a beloved athletic figure in America. So you could have just, you know, started and ended with that and just, you know, lent your name to the label. But I'm, I'm just so um, excited by the fact that you want to actually help make the wine and you want to be involved in, on all levels. So this isn't just some sort of like, um, oh, yeah, you can borrow my name and whatever, and let's make and go ahead and do this, that you want to be a part of it is awesome. Yeah, I well, it, it's so funny because I, um, I want it to be authentic. You know, I don't want to just lend my name to something. And and it's funny because with other <laughs> with other brands, I kind of assume that's what people are doing. It's just lent, you know, with celebrity brands. I'm like, oh, they're not actually out there, but maybe perhaps they are. I have no idea. People are really surprised when they learn that no, I'm out there, you know, testing bricks and helping with the harvest and helping mm -hmm. with the production and. Um, I, I love that side of it. You know, we just, we just harvested last week, our Chenin Blanc. Um, mm. and that was at 3am. <laughs> so my, my wake up <laughs> call that morning was at 1:45. It was a brutally early morning, but, um, I want to be out there and I want to experience it. And, um, part of that is for that authenticity. And, you know, to be frank, part of it's cause I'm a control freak. <laughs> I, <laughs> I want this to do, to be successful. And, you know, Shana and I, we're, we are two people, we're a two woman uh, winery, and um, we have to both be very flexible in our schedules and flexible in what we do. Um, and so far, that has paid off for us because we've been growing um, thoughtfully every year and um, creating a good product out of it. I'm Curious as to what it is about Chenin Blanc that both you and Shana love. It's not a grape that everybody, especially in Napa, would start with. I happen to love Chenin, and I'm so glad you're doing it. And I know Napa has a long history with Chenin, but what was it about that that drew you two to it? It was a few different things. Um, so partially it was because Shana and I both really love aromatic white wines. Um, just something different, you know, it's not that I don't love a Sauvignon Blanc, um, or, uh, you know, a Chardonnay or something, but people experience that and drink that and make that all the time in Napa. We wanted to do something different. Um, and we both love Chenin Blanc. We were able to get some really good fruit. Um, and so it was partially that, Partially, um, you know, it, it's more affordable. So when you're getting into the industry, um, you want something that you don't want to spend too much capital. So it's financial. Um, it, there was the harvest timing of it all. It fit into Shana's schedule because she's the winemaker at Honeycut. So as a custom crush facility, um, when we're in the middle of Cabernet uh, <laughs> towards the end of, of harvest, like she is so crazy busy. So Shannon tends to come in a little earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so there, are a, there were a lot of, of factors. And then you mentioned the history of Shannon. Um, it's such a, you know, Shannon was everywhere in Napa um, right. and little by little it got pulled out. And so we like that it is a nod to the, the history of, of the Valley and um, our Shannon at Henry Ranch um, is 
old vine shannon. So it's one of the few areas that still has vines from over 50 years ago. And uh, it creates this beautiful aromatic white that is different than uh, what you typically see on uh, wine lists. And I think that's so great. And hopefully people are responding and creating a demand for more Shannon. I know. It's awesome. You guys are also making Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and a Rosé, yes? Correct. And uh, we're going to release our Cabernet Sauvignon um, this September as well. So we're, we're growing little by little, and um, it's it's been really, really lovely. So our, our two main wines that we started with are Pinot Noir and Chenin Blanc. Um, and our Pinot Noir, we've been working with the same vineyard uh, for all five vintages. Um, it's Sunset Knoll and Carneros. It's really beautiful. Um, actually, uh, the Press Dem Democrat gave our 2019 98 points. Um, so that was really exciting yeah. for us. Yeah, double gold. So <laughs> Fantastic. Were, yeah, we were so, so happy about that. Um, yeah, so we've been working with it, that same fruit um, for all five vintages. And then um, we're also going to add a Merlot this year. Um, we were supposed to add it last year, but with the fires, um, the it was too smoke tainted to um, to work with, unfortunately. And and you all were impacted by the glass fire in 2020 because Honeycutt is right next to Chateau Boswell. And for folks who are familiar with what happened during the Napa fires, Chateau Boswell burned to the ground. Yeah, and uh, Honeycutt suffered quite a bit of damage as well. Um, the press pad was uh, engulfed. Um, they had just put in brand new solar panels, Ugh. and um, that all burned down. Um, you could see into the gunite. I had no idea it's possible for gunite to burn, but it, there's like chunks of it missing from the fire. Um, there was a tasting room, uh, like a little house uh, at the beginning of Honeycutt that burnt down. Um, and a bunch of the tanks were damaged. Luckily, all of our wine and most of the wine was in the caves. And so they were safe and sound in there. But, um, it, yeah, it, it's so scary. And you go up there now right. and it's surrounded by forest and it's just charred forest. Mm. Uh, it is so brutal. And we're not out it, of the woods yet this season, you know? I know, I know, I know. And it's, it's crazy. And all through that, uh, Shana and her team were, were working through that. Like I was, terrified for them um and it's just so scary uh and it's something that we didn't expect when we started this in 2017 and there's been a fire every single year um you know it, it's been you know so stressful in that way absolutely um, well that's kind of become the new normal that you have to be prepared now for fires to erupt um this time of year unfortunately um, and hopefully um, all the wine growing regions all over will be spared this year. But, you know, just time will tell. And we hope the winds will be benevolent this year. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And more, more rain. <laughs> yeah, more, more rain for sure. Dang, yeah, let's all sure. do the rain dance. Yeah. Hey, you know, we didn't talk about, uh, we never said what uh, the name Gadarian, where you guys got that. And also the the little critter on your label, the jackalope. <laughs> it's a cool, um, it's a cool uh, drawing of this kind of mythical creature. Tell me where you guys came up with Gadarian and then your jackalope. Yeah, so um, Gadarian means to gather in Old English. And so when we were coming up with different names for our label, we thought, 
gathering around a table with friends and family. And um, so we, we really loved that name. Um, we didn't want it to be, uh, you know, Coglin Wines or anything like that, because I'm only one half of the brand. Um, and so we came up with that and we love the name Gadarian. Um, and then when Shana and I were talking about labels and maybe having a mascot, there are jackrabbits all over the, the vineyards, especially uh, at the Carneros Vineyard. And um, Shana jokingly said, what about a jackalope? And I love the idea. I think she was mostly joking, but I was like, yes, let's do a jackalope. <laughs> and um, so she had a, she had a friend that did the artwork for, for our little jackalope and I love it. And we actually have a really great stuffed jack- jackalope that we bring to tastings that people um, love, lo- love to see, uh, you know, if we're at any of the wine festivals, like that's really eye catching. And it's so funny how many people come up and in all seriousness, I knew they were real. I told my husband or I told my <laughs> friend, I knew they were real. And, it's like, and we don't want to oh, break it great. to them. That's uh, awesome. That is so yeah, funny. Fun. I love that. Well, Does he have a name or is it good? Uh, is his name Gadarian? Yeah, we've been, we've been trying to come up with a name for years. So I will take suggestions of all types. <laughs> <laughs> well, you not only have fun with your labels, but also with your winemaking notes and your tasting notes. I started <laughs> reading them and I just started cracking up. They are hilarious. I'm going to just read a couple. On your Chenin Blanc, you said, whole cluster gentle pressing. We squished those grapes like an auntie on fat baby's cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> and your parents' suggestions are bocce snacks, baby lettuces, baby crabs, baby carrots, baby back ribs, baby corn. <laughs> Just kidding. No wine pairs with baby corn. <laughs> and I love this one on your um, invisible vineyard Chardonnay. Each berry was peeled by hand and squeezed between the index and forefingers of our right hands to make sure it is our left brain being activated during pressing. I mean, and, and that's that, awesome. And that there's it, the tasting note is, ooh, girl, you've got to get some of this. It tastes like a creamsicle melted in your mouth. <laughs> I love those. So who comes up with that? Uh, that's mostly Shana. Um, I we we love our tasting notes on our website GadarianWines.com because it it's not pretentious. You know, the wine industry could be so pretentious at times, and um, we wanted to poke fun, you know, tongue in cheek at that uh, with with those notes. If you actually click through and then get into the the actual wine shop, we we do have. The, the real um the legit yeah the legit uh tech sheets but oh but these are uh, so much more fun exactly these are more fun and it kind of just shows our personality that we are making a serious wine um but we have fun doing so and we don't take ourselves so seriously and we want to be approachable and that kind of goes back to when i started getting into wine as a wine lover um, it's intimidating when you're in your early 20s mm-hmm. and you go, go to a winery and you don't know much about it. And um, you have people just this air of pretension. And uh, I was always so grateful with the people who would kind of take me under their wing and show me the ropes, uh, mm-hmm. per se, you know, of, of wine. And I learned so much and um, it could be intimidating. Oh, so, God, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's so- the whole goal of the podcast. We like, we both have felt that it's unnecessarily 
pretentious and scary for people. And I think part of it, at least for me, was sort of the French factor, which is not to say anything bad about French wines because they're delicious, but just the the difference in the pronunciation and how to say, you know, mm-hmm. where where are we talking about some of these old French wine houses and things? It That kind of, I think, added to the... Um, not snootiness, but just made it seem extra, you know. Well, made it seem more less approachable. Yeah, exactly. You had to, you had to know, you have to know geography to understand French wine labels, right? And who knows, you know, Vouvray. Okay, I, you know, who except a Chenin Blanc fanatic like me is going to know where Vouvray is? Not exactly. Me. <laughs> exactly. So we we like to make it approachable, and uh, you know, wine's supposed to be enjoyable. <laughs> So we like to have fun with it. Absolutely. Well, you also like to have fun on some other things. Um, we were talking about how swimming has opened so many opportunities for you. Um, and so has your cooking. But there's a couple things we dug up. Um, that One is you were on Dancing with the Stars back in 20, 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. What was that like? Was that fun? Yeah. It was amazing. I loved every second of it. It was um, it was challenging physically. Uh, it was so fun to play dress up, especially as a swimmer. I never wore makeup as a swimmer, uh, competing and never, you know, I was in a swimsuit with yeah. you know, no shoes and, um, getting to wear these over the top gowns and over the top makeup and hair was so fun. Mm-hmm. And, um, the competitive side of it was really fun. Um, the, the reality TV part of it was, that's the only part that I had, Um, I was too stubborn to really lean into the fact that it is a reality TV show. I I just wanted to work hard and and, Mm -hmm. uh, be a good dancer. I forgot like you have to sell, you know, like you have to sell everything. And um, it it was a tremendous learning experience, but I I made friends with so many people from different backgrounds and um, I I loved it. I was truly sad when I got kicked off. What did you dance before that? Did you know anything about dancing going in or no, were you just no. like the did you like, you know, to get down at a wedding reception or something? Yeah, I yeah, socially I love to dance, but <laughs> um yeah, no, and I actually I I was really good at memorizing the choreography. Um it was Not surprising. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the physical aspect of it being an athlete and especially swimming, we have to think of everything that is happening in our bodies when you swim. And so that really translated well to dancing. Um, but I, I loved it so, so much. And what was your favorite dance? My favorite dance, sadly, was the Pasa Roble, which is what we got kicked off for. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, is, uh, what is the Pasa Roble? I, I don't know it. It's, um, it's a Spanish dance. And it, it was, uh, it, there's like a lot of like stomping. And I, we did it to uh, American woman, like Lenny Kravitz's American woman. Okay. And I was wearing like a basically like a Wonder Woman outfit. It was <laughs> awesome. And we had so much fun. And apparently there was an e- illegal lift. And yeah, no. I, I, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I'm not bitter about it, you know, like 12 years later. <laughs> Only a little. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. So something else kind of um, daring that you did was um, you were in Sports Illustrated in the sim- swimsuit spread, and it was a body paint swimsuit. Um, so what was that like, and how long did that take, and how did it feel? 
It was incredible. Um, I, the artist, I think her name is Joanne Gare or Gar. Uh, she is an artist in every sense of the word. Like it took maybe eight, 10, maybe even longer, 12 hours of painting um, wow. to, to get that suit uh, on me. And in real life, it really looked like I was wearing a suit. I did not feel naked at all. Wow. Um, it was crazy. And the whole process is really interesting because Speedo um, actually physically made a suit. And, um, and then uh, Joanne, she copied that onto my body. It, it was the craziest thing. Oh, wow. Um, and just like the shading and it, it like, it was amazing just to watch her work. Um, and you know, being a swimmer, we don't wear that much anyway. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I felt very, very comfortable, uh, that the people at that shoot were incredible. And, um, I was very grateful to be, be a part of that because it's, uh, such an iconic, um, issue. And, uh, I, I was just really happy to be included. Yeah, for our list cool. for our listeners, you should just do a Google search for them. When I looked at the photos that were in the Sports Illustrated spread, it looked like a fabric swimsuit. I could not believe that was body paint. And and the craziest thing, like in in real life, like I have iPhone photos of it. It that it really does look like a suit. It wasn't photoshopped to look like a suit. In real life, it's it did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and also it shows off your incredibly muscular, you know, your, um, what you've worked so hard on your body has, has been an instrument for you to, you know, help you reach your success. And, um, you know, so it's cool that you got to show that off that strength that you've achieved through really, really hard work. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I've always had a lot of muscle. Um, so it's important to show like different female bodies and, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and, and to show that, you know, strength could also be uh, beautiful is, is something that I, you know, having a daughter, I think that's really important. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about being a mom to two kids now. Um, mm -hmm. What is that like? Are you enjoying the journey? Are you exhausted? You mentioned getting up for uh, that early morning harvest, I think it was. And I was thinking, yeah. your baby, is he even a year youngest? Is he even a year yet? No, he's nine months. Um, but so he's, those morning like, wake ups are you're probably pretty used to getting up in the middle of the night. I I was insane with both kids with sleep training. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> so, are. Yeah, I yeah, I was. Yeah, again, it goes to that control freak side of me. Um, yeah, the sleep training, we got on that very early. <laughs> and uh, I've been blessed with two kids that sleep very, very well. Um, so I, I'm very fortunate in that. But but yeah, I'm, I'm used to getting up early, but when you're setting your alarm at, at one something, that's just uh, a little too much. But yeah, be, being, a, being a mom is great. Um, you know, my kids are two and a half and nine months. So it's a lot. We're in a stage where my daughter's physically attacking my son at all times because she's jealous and, hmm. um, you know, like having two so young and being yeah. at home so much is, is tough, mm -hmm. uh, but they're they're so stinking adorable that it makes it <laughs> <laughs> it makes the the craziness uh worth it uh but they, they're they're great and my daughter just started preschool uh last week which was so exciting for all of us <laughs> uh, so she's in in there a couple times a week and uh yeah it's been great it's been really I, great i think i saw some photos on your instagram of, of her cooking a little 
Yeah, yeah, she helps me a little bit. Um, yeah, she has her little apron and stool and she likes likes to help in the kitchen. Um, you know, just this morning she was helping helping me make her uh scrambled eggs and she does for a two-year-old, she does a really good job of cracking eggs and uh <laughs> into a bowl without making a total mess. Oh cute. So will cute. you get her in is she swimming yet or are you getting her in the pool at all? She's probably a little young to be learning actual swimming, but um No, they're she... they're both swimming. Um yeah, they're they're both uh in some lessons. That's um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. My daughter, she's I mean, she's very good at, at swimming already. Um, you know, she it's all about water safety. Um, mm. but but yeah, she could, she loves, she's fearless and she loves to, loves to swim. Um, and we even put her in uh, my husband's swim team. She did a time trial at the beginning of summer for the summer league. It was the cutest thing ever. That's <laughs> 20, oh, wow. 25 free. <laughs> so when it comes to competitive swimming for your kids or competitive anything, what's your philosophy on it? Because I know a lot of parents like want to raise a champion. And um, I was once talking, I got to chat with uh, Brandy Chastain at a soccer game. And she was saying, you know, like, it's, it's not about what the parents want. It's like, a, it's a kid driven thing. She said, well, I think for parents trying to build a champion by, um, you know, by pushing, they're, they're misled on it. Would you agree with that? Definitely. I Yeah, definitely. It, it has to be that internal motivation. Um, Did you feel that as a kid? Like you were just get me in the water? I love it. Uh, I, you know, I, th there are things I didn't like about it. Swimming is in Northern California in the winter is not fun <laughs> and it's, a, and it's a tough sport. It's a, it is a really, really tough sport. So there were times that I wanted to quit for sure, but my parents, um, their rule was that I had to be, uh, dedicated to something outside of, um, uh, academics. So I had to, you know, do well in school, do my best in school. Um, but I also had to dedicate myself towards something outside of school just to keep myself busy and healthy. And um, so I chose swimming. And, um, you know, when I would get to those tough times where I was just over it, um, they would help me through it. So it's it's really, you know, the the biggest the biggest thing I could tell parents is that your job is to be supportive. Um, your job is not to be their coach. Your job is not to direct their athletic career. <laughs> and my husband's a coach and uh, he, he knows how difficult that is when a parent is doing all the directing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, just be, be supportive for your kid and, and, and help them find the sport that they love. Um, you know, it, my kids may not love swimming. Uh, they do now. But, you know, in a few years, maybe she likes soccer or maybe, you know, he likes baseball. Who knows? Uh, but I, I, I can tell already they're pretty physical kids. So I, I think we'll have to get them into sports uh, just to burn off some of that energy. <laughs> wear, wear them out. Yes. Yes. Uh, my son is already climbing things like ladders and slides and he's nine months old. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. You've got your hands full. Um, a couple more things I wanted to ask about uh, that you've been involved in on the food side. Um, you were on Chopped. You competed um, and made it to the final round with against Danica Patrick. What was that like being in that pressure cooker of a situation where you're timed, you have to think on your feet, open that mystery box and make whatever you 
you can from the ingredients there. It was so funny. The The night before we shot that, I actually had nightmares about it. And I have never I had would. nightmares about anything in my life, like before the Olympics or before Dancing with the Stars. Never had nightmares. Before Chopped, I did. And it was it was funny. It was a long day. It was, uh, like, I couldn't believe it for, a, you know, I think it's a half hour show. Maybe right. it's an hour. It's an hour. Um, it's an hour. Okay. We shot that for 18 hours. I could wow. not believe it. Um, oh my word. <laughs> I could not believe it. Like I did I was leaving with Danica after uh, we shot that at like 2 a.m. Like I, it was a long day. Um, but it was really, uh, it was a great exercise in making a decision and then going with it. Um, so uh, when I say that, uh, you know, for instance, a ingredient was almonds. So you see the almonds, you see that clock of uh, counting down. You're like, okay, I'm going to make almond milk. You put all the almonds in there, you make almond milk. And then you think, oh, if this doesn't work, I'm completely screwed. <laughs> so <laughs> right. you have you have to make that almond milk work and you have to make it work within your dish. Um, so it, it's great uh, exercise and making a choice, sticking with it and figuring out how to pivot um, when stuff doesn't go your way. Um, it was, it was challenging because you don't know where things are in the kitchen. You don't know what works, what doesn't. Um, and I know I'm a great cook, but I don't ever time myself. Like that's, that's the challenge of a, a show like that is, you know, I can make a great meal if I give myself two and a half hours, but if I, <laughs> if I sure. have 20 minutes, <laughs> that's, that's another story. I, I don't think I could do it. And I love was, to cook. It was fun and actually, and I was so impressed with what I was able to come up with uh, after every um, every round because it is such a pressure cooker and you are working with odd ingredients like chocolate covered marshmallows with a steak. Okay, we'll make that work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how how did you make that work? Um, I, uh, with some red wine, I, um, like reduced it. I, I kind of melted it into some red wine and made it like a sauce, okay. um, like, like a, a demi-glaze type sauce, uh, with a good the, idea. Yeah. It, you know, it, it was, and then it's funny because after that show, um, after that shooting that show, so many different ideas would come into my head. I'm like, Oh, I should have used this that way or this, that way. But you know, you, you make a decision and you stick with it. That's true. Yeah. It's cooking on the fly and in, with in front of cameras and with a timer, you know, <laughs> with the clock ticking. So intimidating. Mm -hmm. And then you were on the other side of the judges table when you were a guest judge on Iron Chef America. Um, and that, so what was it like? Because you had um, Mario Batali and Emeril Lagasse against Bobby Flay and the um, chef, of the White House at the time. This was in 2010. And I think um, the White House Garden Produce was their um, battle. And um, you were judging with Nigella Lawson and Jane Seymour, I think. So yep. how did that go? What was that like? That was incredible. Incredible. Um, yeah. So the secret ingredient was the White House garden. So unfortunately, I wasn't there when they harvested everything mm. for that episode because I would have loved to have seen the White House garden. Um, and it was part of uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama's, um, you know, campaign for, uh, you, you know, uh, healthy living and everything. So that was really cool. And it was Chef uh, Christetta Comerford and Bobby Flay and then 
Emil Lagasse and Mario Vitale. And I was just in awe of them. Like they were all so proficient in what they did in the kitchen. And they were so relaxed, especially um, Chef Vitale. Like he like he had been there before. He knows where everything is. He did not care that there is an hour to do everything. He was relaxed and confident knowing um, his abilities. And, uh, whenever you get to see someone who is so good at what they do and they make it look effortless, um, that, that's such a treat, you know? And on top of it, the food was incredible. Like I was so impressed. Like I, when we had to give some negative feedback, I felt like I was being so nitpicky because <laughs> mm. it, it was all so good and so impressive, um, in what they were able to create in less than an hour. Well, as we get ready to wrap up here, I was wondering if there's any like last words you want to leave us with. I know that uh, you, your Guderian Wines, you guys have a wine club people can join and you, you're a relatively small producer. So if you want in on your wines, people can go to your website, but also being part of the wine club might be the way to make sure you get, because you're already sold out of some of your stuff. Chard is sold out? Yeah, our Chardonnay, our 2018 Chardonnay sold out. Um, our Rosé, will, our 2020 Rosé will sell out very, very soon. Our Petite Syrah was um, for club members only. So yeah, we we have our club membership, which is called The Gathering. Um, and it's, it's really affordable. It's um, three shipments of four bottles a year. So you get a case um, a year and then you, on top of it, anything outside of uh, club membership, you get 20% off. So if um, you want to give us a try, it's, uh, yeah, you just go to our website, gadarianwines.com um, and, and sign up there and uh, you'll get an email from either me or Shana. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then all the socials where Gadarian Wines. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Gadarian Wines. And if people want to taste your wines, uh, is that possible? It is um, with appointment only. So uh, you'll have to contact us through the website and we could set that up. Well, I know you guys are going to be getting pretty busy here, heading into harvest pretty soon. So uh, what are you looking most forward to about the harvest experience? Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting through a season without a fire, hopefully. Not yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, like I said, we're going to add uh, Merlot to our program this year. Uh, we were really excited to do so last year and didn't get to. Um, we're getting some beautiful Merlot from the Bextoffers. Um, our Cabernet Sauvignon, um, making that again will be exciting because I only have experience with our 2019, which is now in bottle. And um, so to have that uh, going again would be great. Um, and then experimenting a little bit. Um, in 2020, we did our Rosé Whole Cluster Press. In uh, 19 and 18, we did it with the Sanye. So we're going to do it both ways this year, see which what we like best. And, oh, cool. um, and it'll be a fun experiment uh, for Shana and me. Neat. Well, I can certainly see why people want to gather around your table. Natalie, you are such a uh, an impressive person, not only because of your athletic achievements, but also just the, uh, your hardworking, authentic self and the classy way that you run your life. So kudos to you and continued success to you. You're somebody that we all want to cheer for because you're just so, um, so nice. And so, uh, like I said, hardworking and, um, down to earth. So kudos to you. 
And we love that you're making your wines that are approachable, that are, and you do it with a sense of fun and you don't take yourself too seriously and that um, you are really, truly hands-on. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Sip Sip Hooray today. Um, we do hope it's a good year for the winery and um, also for your family. Congratulations again on your sweet little family. That's so cool. Your new baby and your two and a half year old. Um, and uh, just really love chatting with you, Natalie. So thanks for taking the time with us. Thank you. Absolutely. And um, everybody, we encourage you to uh, check out Gadarian Wines and pour a glass and toast to Natalie. Sip, sip, hooray, Natalie. <laughs> sip, sip, hooray. Cheers. 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 Mary Babbitt, Natalie is so cool. She's so down to earth. And you know, for being an Olympic athlete, I, I didn't know what to expect. And she's just lovely. And it reminds me of the time that we've had the pleasure of interviewing perhaps the only other Olympian who's had a wine label, and that was Peggy Fleming. Oh, who also just incredibly, like Natalie, a class act and really hardworking, hands-on when it came to her winery. Well, yes. really, and like Natalie, everything in her life. I think um, maybe they're just wired that way. If they, mm -hmm. To be able to achieve Olympic success, you have to be hardwired to be willing to work hard and get your hands dirty and just go for it and say yes to opportunities like Natalie. I love that philosophy. Absolutely. And so just say yes to listening to our podcast. We're so glad you've joined us. Um, and we hope you will check out future episodes. Um, you can sign up and also listen to other episodes on our website, sipsiphooraypodcast.com. Yeah, and you can find us on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. We are Sip Sip Hooray Podcast. And on Twitter, we are Sip Sip Hooray, the number one. That's right, because we are number one. That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't won gold yet, but we're going for it. <laughs> Any day now. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, thanks for listening to our show. And we hope to continue to bring more exciting guests like Natalie Coughlin. And uh, again, her winery is Gadarian Wine. So do seek it out. And know that Natalie has put some of her heart and soul and love into each bottle too. Well, thanks again for joining us. And Mary, it's been another great episode. Looking forward to the next one. Sip, sip, hooray. Cheers to you, Mary Orlin. Mm -hmm.